Okay. If you want to take your Bibles and turn, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. Before we get to Mark chapter 8 this morning, though, I want to briefly consider an Old Testament character, Gideon. Maybe you remember Gideon as the fellow who led an army of 300 men armed with pots and torches and pans against the vast host of the Midianites and vanquished them. Perhaps you recall how his army got whittled down to 300 after having, I mean, what still seemed like a very small number of 10,000 compared to the Midianites, but God whittled them down so that Midian or Gideon and, and the Israelites did not take pride in their victory. They knew it had to come from God. But I would guess Gideon is best known for what happens before that. Judges chapter 6, verses 36 to 40, we read this. God has already come to Gideon at this point and told him, I am going to use you, I'm going to raise you up as a deliverer This is kind of the pattern in Judges, like the people of Israel would be oppressed and then God would raise up a deliverer to save them from their enemies and then there would be a time of peace. And God tells Gideon he's next. He's going to be the one that God uses to deliver his people. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Maybe you've heard this passage taught before, or just had a conversation where you said something to the effect, or heard something to the effect of, not sure what the Lord's will is for this situation, so I'm laying out a fleece. I'm, I, I need to put a fleece out to determine if this is really God's will for this situation. But is Gideon a really a good pattern for our faith in this circumstance? Is the author of Judges using the story to praise Gideon's faith? I don't think so. Now, Gideon does come up in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. Like, he does end up acting on what God said, and God does work deliverance, and that is an act of faith that we can admire. But this particular instance of throwing this fleece out to see if God really wants him to do what God has already told him to do, seems like he's basically asking God to, can you, I know you said it to me, but can you write it in the sky with an airplane? Since we don't have any airplanes, I'll just throw this fleece out here. Can we make this work, God? Can you show me really clearly? He, Again, Gideon does ultimately obey. And God works a great victory and provides peace throughout Gideon's days. But this seedbed of shallow faith Seems like it kind of comes back towards the end of Gideon's rule. He makes an idol for himself that becomes a snare for the entire people of Israel. And if you keep on reading, his family falls apart. They were not raised in the faith of Gideon. In the end, it seems Gideon was more sure of himself than he was sure of God. 
What does that have to do with Mark chapter 8? I think it has a lot to do with Mark chapter 8, because as we turn back to Mark, Jesus is going to warn his disciples about sign-seeking. He calls it the leaven of the Pharisees. There's three sections. Uh, I'm going to cover chapter, or chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, and it breaks into to three sections. In the first section, we're going to learn this. Jesus is able to do anything that we need. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. Having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So if you remember, just a few weeks ago, or the, over the last few weeks, the, the this part of Mark's gospel is focused on Jesus' ministry in Gentile regions. So he cleansed the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman who had an unclean spirit he healed a man who was deaf and had a severe speech impediment. That was down here in the region of uh, the Decapolis. And now this great crowd has been gathered, and they've been with Jesus for three days, presumably to see him heal or to have him heal them and to listen to him teach. But as we read this story, you might get a flashback. We're, we read it at, after dinner last night, and Calvin's just looking at me, and he says, Oh, 4,000. I thought this was the feeding of the 5,000, but they had 12 baskets left over that time. <laughs> you're, you're right. <laughs> that is exactly correct. <clears throat> There's a lot of similarities in these two stories, but there are also differences, and those differences are worth pointing out. When you have two similar stories, one of the best ways to learn from them is to set them side by side and say, what's the same and what's different? What can we learn about the similarities? What's important about the differences? Jesus... Uh, has more to work with in this story. He starts with seven loaves rather than two like he did in the last time in chapter 6, verses... Uh, Thirty through 44 is the feeding of the 5,000. The number of the people is smaller. That feeding of the 5,000 was 5,000 men, so it was probably ten to 20,000 people. This is 4,000 people all told. It's a much smaller group, but still a really big group for seven loaves of bread. And then the number of loaves left over also differs. There's 12 baskets left over in chapter 6, whereas there are seven baskets left over here in chapter 8. Now, there's all kinds of interesting theories about the significance of those numbers. Those numbers are repeated over and over. Uh, I mean, they're going to come up again later on in the chapter. I think the numbers are significant. I didn't come clear enough on exactly what the significance is to make that a point in the sermon, but <laughs> I think we should notice them. There, there is something there. 
the overlaps between the stories are very clear. Jesus' compassion compels him to feed a multitude. Uh, The normal material limitations in providing for people that a normal human being would have don't apply when the same Lord who provided manna for his people in the wilderness is standing there in front of the crowd. The one who provided for the Israelites in the wilderness and then provided for the Jewish crowd in Mark chapter 6 is now providing in chapter 8 for a Gentile crowd which reiterates the point that we've had the last couple of weeks. Jesus has come for and will provide for anyone who comes to him. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, Jesus can provide for all of your needs. This crowd was in need, and Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and provided for them the bread they need needed. More than they had needed, right? Seven baskets left over. And he takes a few small fish. It's interesting. Like It almost seems like they're an afterthought in the story. It's after he's given out the bread, after they've eaten the bread. Then he takes a few small fish. It doesn't tell us the number of fish. A few small fish, and he breaks that, and they all eat, and they are satisfied. So we should notice Jesus' compassion and then what it compels him to do to provide for their needs. We should also note the abundant capacity and generosity with which Jesus provides. It's not just that he feels compassion towards them, goes to meet a need. He does it abundantly, above and beyond what they could ask or think. And the disciples have seen Jesus do this over and over again, which makes one other similarity in these two stories both puzzling and troubling. Verse 4, the question they ask, How can one feed the people with bread in this desolate place? You might read that and think, Nudge, nudge. Guys, did you forget who you're with? But their hearts are still hard. They still don't see. So once that scene is over, verse 10, they get in the boat and head for Dalmanutha. And if you ask, where is Dalmanutha? The answer is nobody knows. Uh, that's This is the only place we have record of it anywhere is Mark's gospel. It's probably based on the geography, like... The boat trips that they seem to make before and afterwards, it's probably on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, maybe the northwest part based on things we see in the other Gospels. The point is, he's he's going back to Galilee, and we know that because once he lands, the town marshals, or the Pharisees, come out to confront Jesus, verses 11, 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. Now that, if you're reading straight through, is jarring. Just like the You're coming from Gentile territory where Jesus has just performed this massive miracle. They get in the boat, they head to the other side, and most of our English Bibles prep us for what's about to happen because we've got all these section headings, and this little tiny section in the ESV says, the Pharisees demand a sign, so you know they're about to demand a sign. But those aren't part of the inspired text of Scripture, right? Those italicized, bold-faced headings. If you're reading through just the text... You read verse 10, 
he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. It's like the second he steps off the boat, boom, these guys come storming down to the seaside, their robes flowing, their phylacteries prominently displayed, ready to bring the hammer down on this disturber of this peace, this troubler of Israel. Most commentators agree that the the force of the verb seeking in verse 11, where it says they were seeking a sign from heaven, probably something more like they were strongly demanding a sign from heaven, urgently demanding a sign. The Pharisees come down and they want to argue with Jesus about who he is, argue about the what right he thinks he has to teach the way he does? How dare he be healing people on the Sabbath day? And he better not be planning to do that when he gets here now. What do you think you're even doing in our town, Jesus? You better give us a sign from heaven to prove you are who you say you are. But was this genuine? Was this request genuine? If Jesus had right then and there performed a sign from heaven, wrote in the sky, I am Jesus son of the most high God, and look, I just wrote in the sky to prove it. Would they have been satisfied? I think Turner and Bach put it well. Since Jesus had done nothing but give signs the whole time he was on earth, the request for a very specific sign ignored the great variety of evidence Jesus had already provided concerning his authority from God. This kind of hard-hearted disbelief was not going to be convinced by another sign. One more sign wouldn't have kicked them over the edge. And this kind of hard-hearted belief frustrates Jesus. We see that in verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. He has been clearly showing via demonstrations of his power and his authoritative teaching at this point for at least two years who he is, the divine nature of his person. He truly is the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, and anyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear could hear it, could see it. But the Pharisees just wanted more signs. Now, given the fact that all that Jesus had done to this point is give signs, we might think, okay, he's just going to give them one more sign. But he doesn't. They have had sufficient opportunity. We should think here of the words of Deuteronomy, which Jesus quotes to the devil in his wilderness temptations in Luke 4, but it's Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's exactly what verse 11 the Pharisees are doing. They come to Jesus to test him. They've come to test Jesus, the Lord God in the flesh, and he refuses to comply with their demands. If you start making demands on Jesus, you can count on it going poorly for you. R.C. Sproul comments, Remember, the Bible often talks about God's patience, his forbearance, his long-suffering, but nowhere does it ever say that his patience is infinite. In the days before the blood flood, when the wickedness of men was growing exponentially, God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, Genesis 6.3. Scripture plainly teaches us that there are limits to God's patience. He may forbear with us week after week, month after month, year after year, 
decade after decade, until we become at ease in Zion and think, he will always forbear with us. But there have been times in redemptive history when God's patience was exhausted and he gave people over to their sin. End quote. Jesus does not bow to, Jesus does not acquiesce the demands of the Pharisees. He is disinclined to acquiesce their request. I thought my kids would at least get the Pirates of the Caribbean reference. Uh, His patience with these men has run out, and he leaves them behind. He and his disciples get in the boat, and they leave. And while Jesus will again pass through Galilee in Mark's Gospel, we don't see any more record in Mark's Gospel of signs performed or even extensive public teaching taking place in Galilee. Jesus has brushed the dust from his feet. Jesus' response to this confrontation is to load the disciples in the boat and head for Bethsaida, which brings us to our final scene, verses 14 through 21. Now, they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing... The fact that you have no bread, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The disciples apparently are not great at packing their own lunches. But remember, these are a bunch of young men in their late teens and early 20s, so maybe that isn't surprising. I lived on popcorn and energy drinks at that point in life. <clears throat> Be that as they may, they, they had one loaf between them. And Jesus makes a comment in verse 15, maybe while they're eating that last loaf, that single loaf, he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they somehow infer from this that Jesus must be concerned about the bread situation. And they begin discussing the fact that they are now out of bread. So you can imagine the conversation. Man, when we get to Bethsaida, is the baker still going to be open? Are we going to be able to get any bread? Or are we going to have to be hungry all night? Boy, I, I hope the wind shifts so that we get there faster so that we can get some bread. Those two bites of bread that I got off of that one loaf just made me even more hungry. But Jesus was not concerned about baker's yeast when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. He had a different leaven in mind. And he thought the disciples should grasp this fact. He starts rattling off questions which expose their failure of spiritual perception. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Ask him about the loaves. Do you not yet understand? He's, He's referencing Jeremiah 5, Isaiah 40, these places where judgment is pronounced on God's people for not having eyes to hear, ears to hear. Or eyes to see and ears to hear. It's as if he's saying, do you not understand that if I am with you, you do not need to worry about provision? 
Do you not yet understand that I am the bread you need, the provider of life, earthly and eternal? Why are you hung up on flour and yeast and water and salt? Are you really this dense to the presence and the actions of God? And the paragraph ends with a devastating question. Do you not yet understand? And the force of that question is brutal because they don't yet understand. And Jesus just leaves it hanging there. The disciples missed Jesus's warning about the leaven because they're so hung up on their hungry bellies. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod that they are supposed to be warned about, that we as readers should be warned about? Each of the, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, has a different emphasis in this story. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, Jesus identifies the leaven of the Pharisees as hypocrisy. In Matthew 16 and verse 12, Jesus states that the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was their teaching. And here in Mark, the question is left hanging, waiting for us to make inferences from the context. And I would argue, back to our point on Gideon, that that the point Mark is trying to make in chapter 8 is that the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is sign-seeking, demanding more proof, more evidence, one more sign. Then I'll believe. Do this for me, God, and then I'll trust you. If then. That is the leaven of the Pharisees in verses 11 and 12. And, and I, as Jesus throws in Herod, Herod is the same kind of person. We see that in Luke 23, 8. When Jesus is brought before him, before the crucifixion, Herod's excited because he's thinking, oh man, I've been waiting for this guy. I want to see a sign. He doesn't want to hear Jesus teach. He doesn't want to hear what Jesus has to say. He wants to see Jesus like Jesus is some kind of performing monkey, like he's going to do a sign for him. Now you might be wondering if I'm claiming that Matthew, Mark, and Luke Changed Jesus' words about the leaven to suit their own purposes. Hypocrisy, teaching, signs. No. They emphasize different aspects of the leaven because they are all coming, as they're telling their gospel story, they've got unique audiences and different narrative structures in mind. But all three descriptions, hypocrisy, bad teaching, sign-seeking, they're all tied together. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees is tied to their position as teachers of God's law. In Luke 11 and Matthew 23, we read Jesus unloading a series of woe statements upon the Pharisees. Woe is a common structure, not a particularly common, but it, it, it's a structure in the Old Testament where God is pronouncing his judgment through the prophet upon a, a people or a person. And he's, he's saying, woe to you. And Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Luke 11:46 says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They tied up heavy burdens scrupulously, carefully, maintaining every detail of the law, tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin. But they neglected the weightier matters of the law, love, justice, faithfulness. They looked good on the outside, but Jesus said they were like whitewashed tombs. Their religion was hollow and full of death on the inside. 
And this led to a bad form of teaching. They were teaching people on the one hand to anticipate the Messiah, but then they were teaching people to reject him once he came. Instead of being eager to receive the evidence Jesus gave, which was ample of who he was, they sowed seeds of suspicion and doubt. They tried to make Jesus look bad in public, which never went very well for them, but they kept trying. And this played itself out in a sort of faithless sign-seeking. Matthew 16 and verse 4, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And there where Jesus in, in Mark's gospel just says, Nope, you're not getting the sign. In Matthew, he says, No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, which he's referring to his burial in the ground and then coming back up as Jonah was brought back up onto the earth, essentially given life again after three days in the belly of the fish. The Son of Man spends three days in the belly of the earth and comes back. It's the only sign that they're given after this is the resurrection. Which brings us back to today. Are you trusting Jesus or are you waiting for a sign? Wanting evidence of something is not wrong. First uh, Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul calls 500 witnesses to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. But here's the deal. If you are sitting here hearing God's word, or if you've got a Bible at home and you can pick it up and read it, you have evidence of God's love, his power, and his provision for you. That's not to discount experiences or, or things in your life that he's done to show that, but you don't need to wait for those things to happen when you have his written testimony. Jesus came into this world displaying his compassion, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. There he bore your guilt and God's wrath and freely gives forgiveness and eternal life to all who come to him and receive him by faith. There is literally nothing he could do to make more clear the fact that he cares about you and has not only the desire, but the power to save you. The scriptures make clear that if you look at this evidence and refuse to believe, the problem lies in you, not in the Lord Jesus or the signs he has already given. Luke 16, 31, Jesus is telling the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and, and the rich man in torment is begging Father Abraham in the story to send to send someone back from the dead to tell his family. And, and the the Father Abraham says, they've, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he says, no, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, he says, if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're just not going to believe. Well, the irony of Jesus making that statement, right, is that he's about to come back from the dead. And the same people who were hard towards him in his life were hard towards him as he came back. They, they went from trying to get him crucified to persecuting his followers. If you won't believe what's written, a sign isn't going to change it for you. The problem is your hard heart. The problem with throwing out fleeces to determine whether you're going to trust God or obey him is that you're making yourself the final authority not God. If God does what I want, then I will do X, Y, or Z. But that's not how biblical faith works. 
faith work looks at the accomplishments and the provision, the trustworthiness of God in the past, and looks forward in faith, trusting him for right now and for the future, trusting that he will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So, so quit waiting for more evidence. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Joshua 24.15 says, Choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. We have to trust Jesus right now. It cannot wait. If you've never trusted him for salvation, now is the time. Today is the favorable hour. If you have trusted him for your salvation, then trust him for everything right now, today. And sometimes our faith feels really small, right? It, it feels like the Gideon kind of faith, like, I, you know, yeah, I know what you said, God, and I want to believe you, but it's really hard. And here's what's commendable about what Gideon did. He, he didn't demand a sign the way the Pharisees did. He asked. I, I don't think he should have asked, but it was better than demanding, right? He, he asks. And sometimes our faith is really small. But the good news is it doesn't actually matter how big your faith is. What matters is who your faith is in. Faith the size of a mustard seed in a Savior like Jesus is way better than faith the size of a mountain in a Savior who's no good. We can cry with the Father in Mark 9.24. I believe. Help my unbelief. Ask Jesus to provide for your needs, and more than that, even ask him about your desires, your wants. Bring it all to his feet, and trust that he will answer from his abundant compassion and kindness and wisdom. I just want to finish by reading the words of Lena Sandel's hymn, Day by Day. Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he gladly bears and cheers me. He whose name is Counselor and Power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As your days, your strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me he made. Help me then in every tribulation, so to trust your promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within your holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand, one by one, the days, the moments fleeting till I reach the promised land. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need your help. Our faith is so small. But our Savior is so big, so sufficient, so powerful. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grow our faith. Help us to trust you all of the time, in the good times and the bad, knowing that from your hand, comes every good thing for your children. You do not give us poor gifts. You are kind to us all the time, whether we see it or not. And so, Lord, we ask for the eyes of faith to see. 
We pray that you would guard us from putting demands on you and instead help us to always put our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.